2: 12 podcast players,
0: 11 horrible segues, 10 puns of punning, 9 coleslaw's eating, yeah, it's not funny anymore, 8 lifelines throwing,
3: 7 interviews running, 6 people whining
4: about fees,
3: 5 amazing neighbors, hey, wait a minute, Richie, 5 should be just one amazing neighbor, think you got another typo, man.
5: Four trips to Bavaria. Did we tell you Joe we went to Bavaria?
2: Three trips to the Canadian Rockies. Joe told you he came to the Rockies, right?
5: Two trips to Asia. I'm
0: sure Joe told you all his Southeast Asia trips, right? Wow.
2: He's got to stop that. N-O-G.
4: N-O-G. N-O-G.
3: N-O-G. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and where's the intersection of money and comedy? Probably in the business of crafting the art. Today, we welcome the man behind Comedy Central, Art Bell. We'll ask him about the channel's origins, how he negotiated to get it on the air, why it almost never happened, and chasing your dream. Plus, who's hurting most when it comes to student loans? While you might say all of us, and you'd be right, we'll share a peek at the data and what to do about your student loans with Fidelity student loan expert Asha Shrikantaya. To cap things off, we'll toss out the Haven Lifeline to longtime listener J.J., who has a question about the best way to auto-invest with one of the big investment brokerages. And for my part, I'll get you thinking with an IPO-related trivia question. And now, two guys who will finally learn what comedy is all about, about time, it's Joe and O.J.J.J.J.G.
0: Oh, And I can't wait. Let me be the first one to welcome you to Monday. Thanks for spending it with us. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter and across the card table from me to kick off the glorious continuation of holiday season and our last week of uh, new episodes for 2020. Mr. O.G. I'm
5: going to file today under protest because I'm not supposed to be working today, dude.
0: (laughs) Sorry. Is this work, though? Or is this play?
5: I mean, let's be realistic. Uh, I don't know, but I guarantee in February, when it's your special day, you're going to be like, I don't want to record on my special day, so...
0: <laughs> you think just because you're a year... And of-
5: by special day, I mean winter solstice.
0: If you, That's right. Yes. I think there's a correlation between the fact that it's your birthday and the darkest day of the year. Just, just saying.
5: I thought a different angle of the axe would be that uh, today is also the day that Jupiter and Saturn are the closest ever, and... That's the big bright star in the sky. I, I arranged that in the atmosphere for everybody today is my holiday gift to the world. So so you're saying that
0: there's probably on a day like today, out in the middle of Idaho, there's gonna be some shepherds in a field and they're gonna look and they're gonna see this bright star coming from Texarkana.
5: Yes, pretty and, much.
0: And they're gonna go, Hey, so we're so we're gonna
5: And in several years people are gonna bring us gifts. <laughs> It can be like perfume and soap and stuff like that. It's yeah, going to be amazing. Yeah.
0: Do, do you think that's a bridge too far? You, you think that might be a bridge too far?
5: I think mom would call that sacrilegious. I was going
0: to say, welcome to the sacrilegious podcast for for the win. Hey, by the way, if you're just to get off that note, if you're looking to pay your student loans off or you've got somebody in the family headed to college, you know where you start? You go to studentloanhero.com because it's studentloanhero.com. That's where you get your plan. Not only will you see things about refinancing, lower payments and forgiveness, but you'll also be able to see all of the changes the government has been making and may continue to make over time. But don't wait for somebody else to do your planning, studentloanhero.com to take care of your own. Great show today. Art Bell, who created Comedy Central. I was glued to this. If you like, you know, we just had Guy Raz on. If you like his show, How I Built This. We're going to talk to Art Bell about how he built Comedy Central, or at least the beginnings of how he built it. Uh, Fascinating, fascinating journey. And what a struggle. And you might say, what does this have to do with me and my money? Well, if you're going after something you're really passionate about, which hopefully, if you're listening to this, you are striving for something, Art Bell's going to have some great advice for you. But first, we've got some fantastic headlines today. So let's get moving.
2: Hello, darlings. And now, it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking
4: Benjamins Headlines.
0: Our first headline comes to us from Investment News. That's an industry rag for investment professionals. It's written by Nicole Kasperson. Nicole's headline, Franklin Templeton partners to launch new robo-advisor called Tango. Have you heard of this? Nope. And the reason I bring this up, because of course, we've seen a lot of robo-advisors come out. Of course, the latest that we've profiled on this show was Vanguard. Uh, Brian Kincannon on talking about Vanguard Digital Advisor recently. Franklin Templeton's has a little different spin OG. Listen to this. Franklin Templeton has tapped Singapore based wealth tech Bamboo and Apex Clearing to launch a new turnkey robo-advisor Tango in an increasingly competitive digital advice base. The robo-advisor is designed to enable not individuals, but advisors to execute on two major trends this year, hyper-personalization and glow-based wealth management for clients. According to the announcement Thursday of last week, Tango is likely to be compelling to advisors that are underserved by large custodians, according to a company spokesperson. So Franklin Templeton is going to leverage this thing. It has goal called goals optimization engine. Find out what people's goals are with the advisor recommend a portfolio, the advisor then hands the money into this robo, who then Robo's it. Yeah. Tracks progress toward, toward the goals. And I think what this shows again, OG is, is a bunch of stuff about where the role of a financial advisor is versus where I think a lot of the public still thinks it is.
5: I think it's more and more companies add online. That's not the right word. Uh, uh, trading platforms, I guess, that make things simpler and easier for individuals to manage their money or advisors to manage other people's money, then you're able to spend more and more time on the stuff that's more important, like the actual financial planning goals themselves.
0: Yeah. I really think that, you know, when I hear somebody go, well, Hey, uh, uh, I don't know if my advisor can beat Vanguard. So I'm going to move to Vanguard. I'm like, you don't even have an advisor because your advisor doesn't compete with Vanguard. Your advisor doesn't compete with Franklin Templeton. If your advisor's doing what they should be doing, OG, they're making sure everything dovetails so that the money that goes to Vanguard or Franklin Templeton or wherever it should go is the right amount. And it's in the right place to meet the goal. And you've got a good tax strategy to get there. And if something happens to you, you've got an estate plan or you've got the right risk management strategy. Like it all should dovetail. It's not about managing the dollar.
5: Gone are the days where there was product selection issues, you know, at the, at the advisor level, you know, it used to be, well, if you wanted this product, you had to be with this firm. And like you said, the whole, uh, Oh, I, I, you know, I want Vanguard stuff or something like that. It's like everybody can offer everything nowadays. It's not about the actual product itself. It's about how it all fits together and works with all the rest of your financial planning goals, which only a part of it, is around investment planning. You yeah. Know, and when, taxes, like you said, and state planning.
0: And when you're seeing these investment firms that are even getting on board the value of advice and realizing that their piece of the puzzle that they traditionally offered, which was some manager who was going to buy and sell investments for you, and how irrelevant that manager has become. In a lot of ways. Listen to this. Franklin Templeton, this piece says, is evolving their services to try and increase its value proposition to advisors beyond just asset management. According to back end benchmarkings, head of research, David Goldstone. Listen to what Goldstone says. Asset management is an increasingly commoditized business. Both advisors and their providers are assessing their value proposition and what other value-add services they can offer, he said. The important question for Franklin Templeton is whether these tools help advisors increase efficiency and improve the client experience while still maintaining their personalized services.
5: Yeah, I think, like you said at the very beginning, it's the role of a professional advisor is advice. It's not only, although it's some of this, it's not only product selection and trading and all that sort of stuff, you know? And 25 years ago, it was product selection and trading. That was the primary role. And if you got a little bit of advice on the back end, that's fine. But if we look at this from the perspective of professional advisors, if we're trying to move this industry to a place where, where we want it to be, which is that there's a whole cadre of highly qualified people who are able to give really good advice to people on a financial basis, or on financial matters, I should say, then you have to do one of two things. You either have to grow the organization or grow the place, or you have to find ways to to optimize and free up time. And where you can use technology, and this is what I think we've been saying from day one on this whole robo-advisor thing, it's not it's not the right word. It's not a robo-advisor. It's a like a robo-trading platform. Yeah. You know? Yeah, this is it, and,
0: and Franklin Templeton really is, th- that's what I was thinking, it's robo-advisor-helper.
5: Yeah, it's no different than, a, you know, okay, Google, da-da-da-da-da, you know, schedule a haircut at 10 o'clock. You're using technology to, like, offload those tedious tasks. I mean, gosh, I, I, I know you remember this, I certainly do. Sitting down with a portfolio with paper and pencil, and then finally with Excel, and going, okay, I need to rebalance this. So, how much of this am I going to sell? How many shares of that? And and how many dollars of this? And and you know, where's the taxes? And you would sit. You'd actually work on that for some time. And now, there's technology that does it. Now, that technology is super expensive. In some cases, in some cases, it's free in your 401k. And the more bells and whistles you want to add to it, the more robust it becomes. But now, you don't have to sit. There. You just like press a button, and the computer calculates the, the stuff for you. So, you can spend more time on the other things. Hey, hold on a second, OG. I've got this. uh,
0: We've got a call coming in. I think I know who it is. And in our second headline, student loans back in the news. Lots of talk about possible debt cancellation. As you know, if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, we don't talk politics. But we do talk about the numbers and we talk about the issues and what maybe you can do about it. And here joining us today from Fidelity, somebody that knows a lot more about student debt than I do, Asha Shrikantaya joins us. How are you? I'm doing well, Joe. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm fantastic now that you're here. I'm hoping Fidelity just has a program to just take care of everybody's student debt. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Is that true?
2: <laughs> you know what? We are trying. We are trying. <laughs> It seems like a little bit of a bigger problem than we originally thought, though. So it'll take us a while. Boy, it is. (laughs) Tell me about
0: the student debt snapshot, though, Asha, because there's some big numbers as I read through this.
2: Yeah, there are huge numbers. In all seriousness, student debt is a massive, massive problem in this country. So there is currently $1.56 trillion outstanding in student debt across the country held across 45 million Americans. So just to put that into perspective, it is in fact the second largest lending category in the country. Um, The only thing that exceeds it is home mortgages. At Fidelity, we have actually been pretty concerned about the problem of student debt and the impact that it's having on people's overall financial lives. And through the products and services that we offer to try to make a meaningful dent in this problem, what we have been able to do is actually also look at these trends in aggregate. And so what we see is that student debt is impacting people across all generations, across all industries. And in fact, there are some really surprising numbers in there, Um, what people might not realize. I think it's easy to think about student debt as a uniquely young person's problem, that is actually not at all the case. The people, the generation for whom student debt is growing most rapidly right now is, in fact, baby boomers. And baby boomers also tend to have the highest average loan balances and the highest monthly payments. So it's a problem that has actually turned a lot of people's finances on their heads, I'll say.
0: I've got so many questions, but let's start with that one right there. Baby boomers. Sure.
2: Why? why it's... It, I don't think it's people going back to school. Is that Parent PLUS loans, Asha? It quite often is Parent PLUS loans. What we know is tuition rates actually are outpacing inflation to a tune of about three times. Mm. And rates tend to be rising between 5 to 8% year over year. And so what's happened is that the game of education, the game of college has completely changed since the previous generation went themselves. What that means is, you know, it used to be possible to save up as much as you could send your kid to college. And then maybe they could supplement that with a part-time job or a summer job. And probably wind up relatively okay. Maybe they have some loans, but they pay it off after about 10 years or so. That is about 20 years in the past. The reality of today is that in order to even afford sending your kid to to school to begin with, many families are faced with having to take out Parent PLUS loans, which are not cheap loans. They're actually to the tune of uh, about 7% interest. So you've got people in their 50s taking out 7% interest rate loans to help their children go to school and to, to you know, pay it forward to the next generation. But that was typically the age when people would have been in that retirement readiness phase, like really in that kind of final, maybe 15, 20 years of their career. And we are now seeing an entirely new debt category that's burdening them.
0: Yeah. Just the right on the front page of your study that I have open is we're talking of student debt tool users report contributing zero to their 401k. 23% student debt tool users report an outstanding loan against their 401k. Like this this isn't just wreaking havoc on your day-to-day expenses. It's also wreaking havoc on your future.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the numbers that you just stated are completely accurate. In addition to those two, we found that 80%, of our student debt tool users and people who have student loan debt are telling us that their loans are impacting retirement broadly. So not just the more dire that you just said, but there are several people who are just simply not able to contribute as much as they would want to because they're having to actually deal with these monthly payments.
0: Obviously, if I asked you what the answer is, you know, this this problem that's been around forever that nobody seems to have the perfect answer to, we'd probably have a week long of shows on that. <laughs> but, but, but I will ask you about you guys, you and your team, Asha, have this tool people can use to help them maybe begin to solve their debt problem. Tell me about uh, Fidelity's tool.
2: Yeah, so we have what we call the Fidelity Student Debt Tool. It is out there in the world free for anybody to use, not just Fidelity customers, but anybody. Really what the tool does is it enables people who have student loans to enter a few quick details on their loans and then actually get a personalized view back to them of, first and foremost what does your loan picture actually mean? So digestible data in terms of how old will you be when you actually pay off these loans? How much are you accruing in interest and how much is that adding to your overall loan balance? So give you a real sense of your current snapshot. And then I would say, more importantly, actually highlight options that are available to you. So the federal government has a whole variety of repayment options. Some people might consider private refinancing as a good option, reflecting back To people, you know, if they're able to put an extra $50 towards their loans every month, what impact would that really have? So really kind of doing the math behind all of the options that are available to you to let you know, First of all, you're not locked in to one single fate, but then secondly, how can you actually make a better decision between all these different options that might be out there for you?
0: We'll link to the calculator on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Thank you. I, I have to ask you something else, Asha, why we have you, which is, you know, employers this year are really looking to hold on to talent, right? I mean, they're holding on to people, I think is difficult for any employer. Are you seeing these programs that employers have where they'll maybe put some of their match money toward student loan repayment or helping employees pay off their student loans? Are you finding that to move the needle at all?
2: Absolutely. So that's actually a big part of what we are doing here at Fidelity is we're helping employers help their employees through uh, benefit programs directly centered around student debt. Oh, cool. And These take a lot of different forms right now. So we're seeing that Employers, in some instances, they're actually contributing fifty dollars, hundred dollars, five hundred dollars directly towards their employee student loans. That is directly hitting that principal balance that the person has and saving them a huge amount of time and money over the life of their loans. And um, those are those are really great programs. In addition, we have programs that thread together, retirement and student debt. So there are a lot of people like we just spoke about who are unable to actually contribute their own money towards their retirement plan because of the student debt that they're carrying and other financial burdens. So what these types of programs do is it enables you to actually earn your company's match based off of the amount that you're paying towards your student loans every month, which is another really great way for an employer. Yeah. To help their employee... know, save for retirement alongside paying down their student debt. So we are seeing much more traction in this space, which is to say that more and more employers are recognizing that there is an important job to be done to help society at large with the student debt problem. And employers are really interested and invested in getting involved, to your point, it's it's a huge talent differentiator, and it's also a really big contributor to overall financial wellness for employees.
0: Again, we'll link to a uh, Fidelity study. We'll also link to the student debt tool at stackingbenjamins.com on our show notes page. Asha, thanks a ton for taking time out of your busy day to talk student loans with us. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: Big thanks to Asha for... Calling in, you know, OG, talking to Asha and looking at this issue with companies, there's so many ways that employers can get involved to help their employees pay down student loans. And really, the cost of that is so inexpensive. So, so, so inexpensive.
5: I think the biggest thing here is just to start with the idea that when you're building your team or you're looking at growing your organization, you have to look at your people as investments and not... Uh, not an expense. When you look at it from an expense standpoint, what do you try to do with all your expenses? Joe, we just finished business planning for second management. What do we try to do with all our expenses? We try to slash them. Like, can I get rid of this? Oh, do we need this subscription? Oh, I th- that's it's-
0: not the part we grow? We don't grow that part?
5: <laughs> we, we do, yes. That's not what you're supposed to do. Oh. And so if you look at your people as expenses, then you're going, oh, I want to cut those. I want to I trim that. And the reality is, is that if you look at your team as an investment... What do you want to do with investments you want to grow? So treat your people like investments and they will perform. Speaking of student
0: loans, not only today are we going to provide some great resources with Asha's group at Fidelity, but also we're super happy that today's episode is brought to you by Student Loan Hero. If you're ready to pay off those student loans, you can get your custom repayment plan today. See how you can lower interest rates, decrease monthly payments, and find forgiveness. Whether it's refinancing, lower payments, and forgiveness, I'll tell you what, OG, I think this is a good one to punch. Use that fidelity tool that Asha talked about. Head to Student Loan Hero and then attack your lower payments or your refinancing options. Also take their quizzes, use their calculator, get educated on the best way to get yourself or a loved one through college. Studentloanhero.com for more. That's Student Loan Hero. I think our takeaways today, number one, will lead with Asha's which is attack those student loans, find out if there's a better way to do it. I think that's A, number one, if you have student loans. And number two, do you have an advisor who always just talks about investments? It's not the whole game. It really, OG, is much more about dovetailing everything you do so that they all work in conjunction with each other. And even if you don't have a financial advisor per se, having a plan that dovetails everything is job number one. I'm super excited to introduce this next guest. Art Bell is a guy who is known for creating, building, and managing successful cable television channels. He's a guy who gave up a very lucrative career to get into what he was passionate about. Went to a little business school called Wharton, ended up working for CBS. That led to HBO, and we'll ask him all about his time at CBS and HBO, and then ultimately how they created the initial days of how they created a little channel called comedy central comedy central by the way isn't the only thing that he's done he also was president of a little place called court tv so here with some stories from his new memoir constant comedy how i started comedy central and lost my sense of humor let's say hello to art bell And on my dad's shortwave radio, it's our new friend, Art Bell. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you? Good. I I have to ask you, is it comedy and your love of comedy that keeps somebody like you going during a time of COVID like this?
1: Well, it certainly helps, I got to say. I mean, I I think taking your sense of humor with you wherever you go is very important. And in the toughest times, you know, you just got to find some things to laugh about.
0: How long have you been a fan of comedy?
1: I think I started when I was 8 years old. I mean I started noticing, yeah, I started noticing that my family was funny, you know, my I had two younger brothers, they were always making me laugh. My father was pretty funny, my uncles were hysterical and I I just started wondering, what what makes people funny? You know, and and I also noticed that it was very powerful that people who made you laugh were almost instantly liked, as opposed to people who didn't make you laugh, who scared you. Those were mostly my teachers in school. Um, (laughs) But anyway, I um, started watching television comedy around that time, The Ed Sullivan Show, which was on every Sunday night at 8 o'clock. And they had some of the coolest comedians on. I mean, that's where I first saw Alan King, whom I loved as a kid. Thought he was very funny. And I also, that was where I first saw Richard Pryor, who, you know, as we, we all know, went on to great fame and uh, and was really one of the world's most important comedians, I think.
0: Richard Pryor, by the way, not to cut you off, Art, but Richard Pryor changed so much over the years. I mean, those things that you saw were not the Richard Pryor we got later on in his career.
1: I think Richard Pryor, and as much as I love him, I won't confess to be a student of Richard Pryor, but he made several sort of left turns in in his career. He started out on the Ed Sullivan Show, and he was a pretty straightforward comic. He was wearing a white shirt and a and a tie, and uh, he was about twenty one years old, and he had a great character. He was he was talking about how he got beat up on the playground, and first of all, I identified with that. Not that I got beat up that often, but you know, every kid in school identifies with that.
0: Sure, I remember. I remember Scott Church. Like I can tell you the name. I was afraid of Scott Church on the playground.
1: Yeah, right. Well, we all have our <laughs> nemesis <laughs> from those days. I certainly had mine. But you know, he was a pretty straight, straight up comic in the same way. You know, sort of not quite Alan King, but you know, he was telling his story. As time went on, he got more serious about what he was talking about. He, I think he really added a lot to the conversation about racism and and other things that were very important. Again, that's what's powerful about comedy. It can deal with subjects in new ways. It allows you to look, look at some of these things through a comedian's eyes and say, Hey, you know, I never thought of that. I never, I never really kind of saw it from that perspective. And Richard Pryor, as I said, he made, he made a couple of turns uh, in his life. One of them was after he visited Africa. I remember that was a, a very big moment in his life because he, uh, it changed his whole perspective. And he shared that change of perspective in his comedy. So that's, that's what I know about Richard Pryor. <laughs> well,
0: something that's interesting, I mean, something that you and Richard Pryor have in common is that when you talk about him making a couple left turns, as I was reading your book, you made, you made some serious left turns art. I mean, immediately, your parents wanted nothing to do with this idea of art being in, like a lot of parents, I think, in this uncertain thing like the entertainment world.
1: Yeah. My parents, um it was interesting because my mother was a piano teacher. She's a musician. She was in the arts. But the whole idea of making living in the arts was always something that they dissuaded me from and my brother's because they thought it was impossible. I guess that's it, they just thought it was impossible. And they begged me to have something to fall back on. They said, you know, my dad was a CPA, he was an accountant. And they said, why don't you just get your CPA? Then whatever you do, you you know, if it doesn't go well, you can have that to fall back on. And I thought, Thanks for all the confidence, mom and dad, you know, that whatever I do, I'm probably going to fail. So at least I can be an accountant.
0: But it seems like every time I talk to anybody in the entertainment industry, Art, like you, their parents had this same fall back on. Like, like for the number of people I've, it seems like anybody that gets involved in the arts, there's a well-meaning parent out there going, you should have this other thing to fall back on.
1: That, That may in fact be true. Certainly truer of my generation, than the generations that's, that's out there now. I mean, the whole idea of following your passion or doing what you're interested in or all of those things, I think those are a product of more recent times uh, and the way parents raise their kids today. In those days, you know, it was, my parents were born in the 20s, they lived through the depression, they saw hard times, they saw a lot of people out of work, they saw World War II. It was a tough world for them, and their assumption was it was going to be a tough world for me. So please make sure you make a living. <laughs> that, was, that was the message.
0: Well, money nerds that listen to this show are, will be happy to know that you yourself are an economics nerd. As I'm turning the pages, you had this love of a class that kind of changed your trajectory.
1: That's right. I, I went to Swarthmore College, and I had no idea what I was going to do with myself. I certainly didn't want to be account- an accountant, but I, I took a class in economics first semester. And the first test I took in that class was about, I don't know, six weeks in. I failed it. And that was probably one of the first times I'd ever failed a test. And I, I said, man, I'm going to have to recalibrate my whole approach to this thing. So I studied hard in economics because I I wanted to understand it. And at the end of that semester, I thought, wow, I really love this stuff. It's really cool. And I ended up being an economics major, taking a lot of economics courses, and got a job offer before I graduated to be an economist in Washington, D.C. I thought that was so cool. I mean, the whole idea that somebody wanted me to work for them as an economist. So I jumped at the chance. And I got to say, I really enjoyed it. Washington was a, a fun place to be when you were 23, 24 years old. Everybody there was, seemed to be in charge of what was going on. You know, we were writing bills. We were, we were making regulations. We were doing all kinds of research. I just thought it was is the most fun. But I will say this. I had three years of that, and I decided, okay, wait a second. Am I really going to do this for the rest of my life? And that was a big left turn that I made right there. I said, I'm going to go back to school. And I'm going to see if I can get into the television business.
0: Yeah, I love how, because you have, of course, a very funny way of presenting this stuff. You say in the book that you're reading Coal Weekly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I I was working on a lot of energy projects, including nuclear and coal and oil. So one of the things I had to read was Coal Weekly. And I just sat there looking at it for a few minutes saying, I can't do this. And I threw the thing down on my desk and I started looking for schools to go to because I had to change the channel. Quite frankly, I had to just do something completely different.
0: Well, you did that with Swarthmore College too, which was interesting to me that you decided to go from Swarthmore to the University of Michigan, which by the way, I shouldn't even be talking to you. Go Sparty. That was the disgusting move, Art, in the whole thing. No, I'm kidding. Of course. But let's go to, you end up then going to CBS. And I can just imagine you, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about you and finally getting this break into entertainment. Tell me what that felt like on day one, and then how CBS went.
1: Well, first of all, I thought I was uh, lucky to get a job in the entertainment business at all. The entertainment industry was not recruiting on campus at the graduate school I went to. And it turns out that having a, a an MBA was not critical to getting into the business. I wish somebody had told me that earlier. But I did find that out. So despite the fact that I got a lot of interest from consulting firms, I didn't want to work at a consulting firm. I wanted to work at a television business. So I took the job at CBS, and I remember getting a phone call from my father because CBS was paying me about half of what I was making as an economist in Washington when I'd left two years earlier. I remember my father saying, okay, now you're making half as much as you were making when you left to go to school. Tell me how this is going to work. <laughs> and what by the exactly way, you, is the plan here.
0: You also didn't go to just any school. You went to Wharton too.
1: Yes. I went to Wharton, a very good business school. Yeah. And uh, I had a fun time there. I learned a lot of stuff. I, I just told my dad, I said, look, this is going to work out one way or the other. This is what I want to do. Trust me. And I took the job and and I have to say, listen, with all due respect to the people I work with and for, CBS was one of the three big networks. And in those days, there wasn't a whole lot of competition except with each other. So they were just a huge corporate entity. It was like the post office. I mean, it moved so glacially because all they had to do was come in first. They didn't come in first, second or third. I mean, I had to come in third. There were only three. But, you know, they were talking about small differences in how much money they were going to make every year. So I was working on financial reports that nobody read. I was sure nobody read them. And I would go into my boss and say, look, nobody's reading this stuff. Why don't I do something else? I got some ideas about how to make things better. And she said, well, you know, we've been doing this this way for five years. Just keep doing it. And I realized that was not the place for me.
0: I want to talk about your next move. But by this time... Art, had you had any thoughts about Comedy Central, about uh, what would become Comedy Central?
1: Um, yes. I, I have to say, when I was in business school, the second year of business school, I wrote what was called the Wharton Follies, and that was a musical comedy review. And it reminded me how much I loved comedy. And I was writing comedy, and we did some film stuff, and I thought, this is really fun. I would like to work at a comedy network. That's what I thought. But there isn't one. There's a movie network. There's a sports network. You know, there's all kinds of stuff. And I said, why is there no comedy network? And I started thinking about what a comedy network would look like About that, around that time. I took this job at CBS because, as I said, no comedy network. And I figured, all right, well, somebody's going to start one eventually. I'll just kind of hang out here until it happens. It didn't happen.
0: So just by what you said there, it was things like, uh, I guess ESPN was out then already. Uh, MTV yep. was obviously yep. out. And they were still showing yep. music videos, which remember right. those days? It was, MTV- early <laughs> days yeah.
1: it was a radio model. Yeah, it was great. They were getting all those music videos for free, too. The bands were bending over backwards to produce very highly produced music videos that MTV would just grab and play the sprockets off of for free. I know that you use that
0: for- later on in your pitch, which we'll get to here in a second about how cheap the programming would be for what you had in your mind. But then did you have the economics of that worked out? Did you, did you think about the fact that this would be very low cost programming?
1: I originally thought about a comedy network, a comedy channel as a celebration of comedy. I love comedy. I love the old stuff. I love the new stuff. I loved all the stuff. And I wanted the channel to be really kind of all inclusive, you know, show movies, show sitcoms, show great comedians, but I realized that the problem, because when, as I talk to people, the first thing they always said is, too expensive. Nobody will ever do it. It's just too expensive to make a, a channel like that. So I started thinking about how you can do it cheaper, and there was MTV taking advantage of free programming. And I thought, man, we could start this way. We could take funny scenes from movies and sitcoms and clips of stand-up comedians, and we can use that. We'll just tell them it's promotional and see if that works. I did not know if that would work either from a programming standpoint or from a legal standpoint. Can you get the clips? I mean, these things are all copyrighted, but that was one of the things I I worked on finding out.
0: And I'm sure what you found out was, was these comedians really want to be noticed. So hell yeah, I'll give it to you. If you've got an audience, this will help me get on more stages. I would think.
1: The comedians were easier because there was lots of stand up comedy footage around. Most comedy clubs in America would put at least one camera, maybe two cameras in their club to film who was ever coming through, you know, and a lot of comedians. I mean, you think about the number of comedians who went up there for seven minutes, did the routine, and then got off. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of stand-up comedy, and that was that was very helpful to get started because it was inexpensive. As far as the movies and television went, that was a great idea, and we actually did find out that we could do it, but we had to get the – sign off we had to get the permission from the directors guild and the writers guild oh and the music guild and yeah it sounds daunting but the studios were so enthusiastic when we told them what we wanted to do because they said oh great we can have promotion for our new movies and also our old movies and remember they were trying to rent videos those days
0: yeah dust it's off the old stuff to make right. a few more bucks there
1: Right. So all that stuff was being promoted one way or the other. And we were offering promotional vehicle and they said, great. So the bottom line was the studios loved it. The guild said, yes, you can do this. Eight weeks before we launched, after we had found a million clips and we had produced a million clips, and that was going to be our, our launch with all of these clips, the directors guild called and said, we changed our mind. We had a board meeting. We don't want you to use the clips. Oh my God. I know imagine my disappointment, eight weeks to launch. And I'm faced with basically having not a whole lot of programming to go on with. It was close to a disaster. But listen, I went to plan B because I was hell bent on making this thing work one way or the other. I didn't have a choice either. <laughs> there were a lot of people depending on me at that point.
4: So. That's
0: what I was thinking. There's a lot of jobs, the whole network there. Well, let's tell that story. So you move over to HBO. Right. How how was HBO different than CBS?
1: HBO had only been around for a handful of years. They went up on the satellite in 1976. By the mid-80s, when I got there, they were incredibly successful. They were making money hand over fist. And they really felt like they were going to change television. That was the mantra in the halls. We are working here. We are going to change the way people think about television. And that's what they did. You know, that's they really changed the whole landscape by putting uncut movies on television. And around that time, they were putting uncut comedy specials on. So you could see Robin Williams act uncut, uncensored, just the way he did it in a club on television. And before then, you couldn't. Right. Because nobody would show that you would have to go to a club. HBO was really making some incredible changes in the way television was being produced and sold
0: you would think that that would work in your favor you know that you're excited about comedy that you're seeing this opportunity for a comedy channel yet when you took it to the woman in charge of program well tell that story because i i was surprised as all get out by the reaction you got
1: yeah, I got to come, I got to HBO, rather, um, by virtue of the fact that I had been an economist. They were looking for somebody to do forecasting, which was pretty much the last thing I wanted to do in the entertainment business. But <laughs> HBO, you know, it was, there were a thousand people there compared to a zillion people at CBS. It was a much smaller place. And I thought, okay, here I have an opportunity to get close to programming, close to the product. I talked a little bit about a comedy network in the halls or the people I ran into, but I never really got a chance to pitch it. So finally, I said, all right, I'm going to pitch this to Bridget Potter, who was the head of HBO programming. And I thought, if Bridget likes it, you know, this is going to be great. So I went in pretty confident. And I, can
0: imagine, I can imagine her before you tell this. Our, I'm just thinking as you're telling this, her side of the story. So the economics dude <laughs> has this idea about comedy. It's like this actuary walks into a room, right?
1: <laughs> With that's exactly what it was. And the thing is, she didn't know anything about me other than I was not in programming, that I had come up through finance and marketing. Now, that's what I was doing, financial and marketing analysis. Um, but amazingly, she did agree to see me without any trouble. And I saw her the next day. I went in there, I started my pitch, and I said, you know, I really think HBO should do a comedy network. comedy channel, because, and she stopped me right there, and she said, Arthur, and nobody calls me Arthur. She said, Arthur, nobody is going to watch a 24-hour comedy channel. Who would want to watch that? That's crazy. And she said, and not only that, but you would not get comedians to go on this channel. Robin Williams, Whoopi Goldberg, these people will not go on a comedy channel. Why would they want to do that? And how are you going to start a comedy channel without A-list channels? And, you know, she went on for a few more minutes, basically telling me what a terrible idea was and why it wouldn't work, and then said, thanks for coming in. So I walked out, and I was, you know, I'd had a truckload of ice-cold water thrown on me and the idea, and I felt bad for a while, I have to say. But the one thing I told myself is she was wrong. I really believed she was wrong. I believed it was just a matter of time before somebody said, okay, let's do a comedy network and put one together, and I thought... How can HBO forego the opportunity? How can they relinquish the comedy space, which they're making such great inroads into in television? They were synonymous at that point with comedy on the dial because they were doing all those uh, terrific specials.
0: Is there a lesson here, Art, that good ideas can come from anywhere?
1: I think that's right. I think that, you know, one of the things I, not only did I do that, but one of the things I learned as I was in charge of other people and departments, and then ultimately other channels, was that you have to really look to the lower and middle levels in the company for the innovative ideas. Partly because you're so busy running the place or running a department or whatever it is. And it's not like you're not going to have great ideas as you, as you proceed up the ladder. But I really felt after that, a lot of what I was supposed to be doing was identifying other people's good ideas and saying, yeah, let's do that.
0: I want to end our time together today with, I guess the start of the madness that was comedy central, which is, which is most of the book. And we'll let people read all those stories because you did the stuff that went on. Once you got, I felt like it was going to be a story that, hey, we made this thing and then it's successful and everybody knows it like it is today. Oh, no, 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 no. It it wasn't like that at all. But so after she said, no, we shouldn't do this, how the hell did you get it through?
1: Well, it was sort of accidental. I figured I was going to have to go to another company to convince somebody to do a, a, a comedy network. So I started writing it up. I was going to staple that to my resume and send it out to Viacom, CBS, anybody I could think of, see if I get another job. My boss's boss caught me doing it. And he said, what are you working on? And I said, well, I'm doing this. I, I'm running up this idea for a channel. I had a comedy network. And he looked at it and he said, this is great. We're going to go take it to Michael Fuchs, who is the chairman of HBO. Now, Michael Fuchs had just been declared by the New York Times as the most powerful man in Hollywood. This was a guy, I mean, I was afraid of Bridget. But this was a guy. If I got into the elevator with him, I would break into a cold sweat. I mean, he was really something. There we were marching into his office. I, I walked in at that moment, no preparation, no presentation. And I had to pitch the channel. Luckily, I was, you know, I had thought about it for so long. I had no trouble getting through it. I was passionate about it. And I think I sold it on a vision, the vision of not how, how to start it so much, but the vision of what it could become. In 10 years, I said, this place is going to be the center of the comedy universe. This place is going to be where new comedy talent comes. This place is where all the best innovative comedy is going to be made. We're going to be known for comedy. And I think that's what sold it. Just that idea.
0: How did – well, and it makes sense because HBO, to your point, had done so much work, you said earlier, with comics already – I mean, so you you could see the synergy and I'm sure he said, well, obviously he did see the synergy because he green lights you looking at it. I'm wondering a couple things that are kind of in the weeds, things that everybody listening, I think is wondering, Art, what did Bridget think about you, you, you ending up over her head. And now to some degree, she's having this idea that she didn't like kind of shoved down her throat.
1: You know what? She was great about it. She was? Yeah. She was great about it. It wasn't so much shoved down her throat. She wasn't really involved with the channel. She was asked by Michael at one point in a meeting if she thought it was a good idea, and she did say yes. She did. This was was in the big meeting that I presented the comedy channel with financials and the programming plan and what it was going to be and everything to probably 25.
0: By the way, the biggest pitch since your bar mitzvah.
1: That's right. That was the biggest issue.
0: I love love that line.
1: (laughs) And so there were 25 top execs from the company there, and Michael Fuchs went around the room after I gave the presentation and asked each one of them while he was looking in their eye, What do you think? Right in front of you. Right in front of me. And I. The reason I think he did that in retrospect is because he wanted buy-in from everybody in the room. He didn't want to hear six months later if things were going badly. You know what? I saw the presentation. I didn't really think it was much, but everybody else was excited about it. He wanted to hear from everybody. Yes, I liked it. And that's where Bridget said, she said, Michael, I think it's great. And flashed back to that meeting we had and I thought, all right, good, for, good for me and good for you, Bridget. You know, yeah. we got we through this together.
0: Yeah, I didn't expect that. The book is "Constant Comedy: A Memoir How I Started Comedy Central and, and Lost My Sense of Humor," which the ugly stuff uh, that happened afterwards. Yeah, right.
1: and I, I just want to say that the ugly stuff was everybody thought Comedy Central was shot out of a cannon and was successful. It wasn't. The first year, I thought they were going to shut us down every day when I came to work. You had That's to,
0: you had to true. will it to be so over and over and over.
1: Really, I was constantly saying, "Here's what we're going to do to make it better. Here's how we're going to be successful." When things went wrong, I tried to figure out what to do next to make it right. Ultimately, we did.
0: There's so many lessons in here, not just the Bridget lesson that we just got, or following your dream, or, or being passionate, but also understanding the craft. And also, the, the fact that you understood the economics behind the craft is not lost on me either, right? That there's, there's comedy, but then there's also the business of comedy. And the fact, Art, I think that you understood both of those, I think, really, really helped a ton as well.
1: Yeah, I, it did. I, I, and one of the things that I learned at that point and that I, that I tell people is that anything you do in your career, any job you have is going to help you in future jobs. I mean, the whole idea that economics was my way into the entertainment industry, by virtue of a fluke, they were looking for somebody to do forecasting, and I knew how to do that. Knowing about economics helped me in everything. Knowing about business helped me in everything. Now, when I got to comedy, they teamed me up with comedy professionals. I mean, guys who had been in the comedy business for 10 years. I did not know the comedy business. I had to learn the comedy business. I mean, these people knew who the best comics were, what their, who their managers were, how much they made, where to find. They knew everything about it. And they were, the first thing they said to me is, what do you know about comedy? I mean, I was really not only the new kid on the block, I was a new kid who had been in finance. I knew nothing about the comedy business and they did not let me forget it.
0: It's such a great story. Uh constant comedy available everywhere.
1: Constant comedy is available on Amazon and all the other places online you can buy books and at your local bookstore. So
0: Yeah. Support is. support your local bookstore. Last question, who do you appreciate now in comedy art? Like when you're when you're looking for comedy, who who, who do you really have an appreciation for today?
1: Well, a couple of people. John Mulaney, I think, is almost a direct descendant of the Jerry Seinfeld school. I mean, he's got so much material and he's he's just he works clean and he, you know, he really is wonderful on stage. And you can tell he loves he loves what he's doing. Uh, Gary Goldman is another uh, comedian that I really enjoy. I, I will say that I one of the big innovations in stand up comedy has been women comedians the number of women comedians who are, are really out there. And I think just as a group, it's been great watching, you know, women get on stage and really talk about the, the women's experience and bring that into focus for everyone. Hey, Staggers,
3: I'm your pal, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. <laughs> Art Bell is one funny guy, but if you think he's just here to talk about stories from his new book, You'd be so, so wrong. Trust me. I have it on very good authority that him being here is about to change everything. Before I tell you what's going on, let's get to today's trivia. In the past few weeks, we've had Airbnb and DoorDash go public and announce their initial public offering, or as cool kids say, they've had their IPO. Did you get in on that action? So let's talk IPO today. When it comes to IPOs, what is the quiet period? Joe's mom's been asking Joe and OG about extending my quiet period for quite a while now, so I am sure she doesn't get the point of today's trivia. But you soon will. You all soon will.
0: Well, if you pay your credit cards off in full every month, you want to hear something amazing, Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically. With no limit on how much you can earn. How amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing because of all the places Discover accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Here's a question. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet that can be hard work. Well, you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. And it's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com.
3: hey trivia fans i'm your soon to be famous pal joe's mom's neighbor doug so as i was sharing earlier joe and og think that art bell was just here to chat about stories from his new book but he's not fooling a guy like me i am way too smart for that the real reason he's here well you and i both know that he's heard about my charisma and charm and he's looking to buy the show and make stacking benjamins the newest addition to the comedy central lineup and i've been telling joe's mom i'd someday be something look at me now look at me now america on the verge of my big break (laughs) well okay Before I head off to celebrate this huge milestone in all of our lives, mostly mine, let's get back to today's trivia. The question was, when it comes to initial public offerings, or IPOs as they're called, what is the quiet period for companies? A quiet period is a set amount of time in which a company's management and marketing teams cannot share opinions or additional information about the firm. With an IPO, the quiet period stretches from the time a company files registration paperwork with the U.S. regulators through the 40 days after the stock starts trading. With already publicly traded companies, the quiet period is a reference to the four weeks before the end of the business quarter. Now, I need all of you to take your quiet period on the news of the latest Comedy Central acquisition before art makes it official. You know, we got to follow all the rules and regs. I'll just have to be patient along with you. See ya. Do you get DoorDash
5: very often? Uh, no, no, not really. I mean, only like probably four or five times a week.
0: (laughs) I got to tell you, I look at the fee for DoorDash and I can't do it.
5: Oh, it's, it's abusive. I just can't do it. You're like, I'll take a Jimmy John sandwich. Oh, that's $26.
0: Okay. We talked to Grant Sabatier, who, for people that aren't in the financial universe, uh, Grant had a big book out uh, last year. And when we talked to him in Detroit at an event, he said the number one thing ordered on DoorDash or Uber Eats in Manhattan peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Really? Can you imagine not making like how lazy do i have to be to not make maybe you just don't have any peanut butter <laughs> maybe maybe that's it i'm thinking there's a there might be a different cure for
5: that hmm, i don't have any peanut you butter. know i this is uh, talking about justification of stuff you know working from home and having done so for the last uh, 6 years i don't have the like let's go out to lunch thing right you know when you worked in the office it was very much like hey who's going to lunch oh let's go over here you know and you couple of people pile in a car and you go to lunch, right? And, and that would be your thing. And I was talking to a friend of mine who ha- goes to an office still and and he, do- he goes to lunch every day. You know, that's what he does. He goes out to lunch. And I was like, I never go out to lunch. I should go out to lunch. Dang it, I deserve to go out to lunch more. But I'm too lazy to actually go anywhere and put on pants. So I'm going to have lunch brought to me. So that's my justification of during COVID, you know, wasn't able to go anywhere, so I'm gonna have I'm gonna have food brought to me instead. But I did like the byproduct of that, which is more and more restaurants were on their DoorDash for a long time, was just you know a smattering of stuff, right. and uh, it was always kind of like it always seemed like it was uh, uh, restaurants that maybe were up and coming, and not like like you couldn't get Chipotle on there always, yeah. or you couldn't get and now you it's know, everything, everything. If you want a five star steak dinner they will door dash that to you.
0: I don't understand. Like my, my favorite thing is, is a home cooked meal. That's my favorite thing. My second favorite thing is going out to dinner and having somebody else serve me a meal. And the upside of that for me is the ambiance, the person serving me all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Eating food that was cooked 45 minutes ago at my kitchen table with plastic utensils, um, it it doesn't, and the fact that I'm paying a premium for that, I just no, no, no. Uh, I would rather make Kraft macaroni and cheese at home than order Chipotle delivered to my house.
5: That's just wrong on so many levels.
0: <laughs> hey,
5: a, you're you're probably the guy that like cooked his noodles like 15 minutes too, so they're like paste, huh?
0: No, Cheryl does that still. I'm like, no. El dente. It El says dente.
5: seven minutes. Oh, and she would, it, it would always
0: drive her crazy because she always wanted me to, um, hold on. I got to take this. Hi, this is Joe. Hi, this is Susie calling with
2: the vehicle service department. Oh. We're calling about your vehicle's manufactured. warranty.
0: Are you kidding me? So we're waiting for, we're, we're waiting for this new bike that Cheryl has coming. So I had to take that. I should have kept that going. Believe it or not, it was somebody's warranty. Your warranty. I didn't know my warranty was up. I had no idea.
5: The good news is that you can pay them to get a new warranty.
0: Not since yesterday, did I know. Hey, uh, big thanks to Art Bell for stopping by. What do you think about leaving a career where you're making a, a good living? It's a seven on a scale of one to 10. To go back to graduate school, a place like Wharton that isn't cheap, OG. And then earn about half the income you were earning before. Because it's what you want to do.
5: This kind of sounds like someone I know intimately sitting across the table from me.
0: But isn't that hard?
5: I don't know. You tell me.
0: It, it, well, uh, no. <laughs>
5: notwithstanding not the Wharton stuff, I, I didn't know you to go to business school, but
0: and like Art said, like he he felt like he had this plan the whole time. I didn't feel like I had a plan. I felt like my plan was to go back to school and become a high school teacher. Mm -hmm. And then sitting in those classes, poking my eye out, just no thank you. But I think that that is such a, it's such a personal decision, but I think you also financially have to be in a place where you've at least looked at the financial implications of that move ahead of time. Right. And -hmm. you have a whole strategy about how you're going to do it. Certainly we were a two income family at the time that I made that move. I sold my business. So I had this bag of money that I knew that I could, we could rely on for a while we calculated the burn rate because we were going to put two kids through college. And so figured out that that was that timing worked out, but I don't think you can make a move like art did or like I did uh, just one day go, you know what? I hate my job. I got to move.
5: Yeah. Well, and that's the thing about having flexibility. You know, so many people think that the, like the whole financial independence thing is, is all or nothing, right? It's one side of the equation or the other. I either retire when I'm 32 or I retire when I'm 62. It's like, that's not the case. It's not about necessarily retiring. It's about building yourself enough of a buffer or building yourself enough of a, you know, a runway, so to speak, to be able to make different decisions and be able to kind of play those decisions out. You know, when you stepped away from your business, yeah, you played it out, right? You said, Okay, it's gonna take me this amount of time to finish school, this amount of time to get a job, this amount of time, you know, and now you went a different path. You didn't end up becoming a high school track coach, but because of your good decision-making leading up to that, it gave you the flexibility to be able to do whatever you wanted to do. It's no different than any business owner who is strategically trying to grow. I mean, we've, in my firm, added a number of employees in the last couple of years, right? And every one of those is a boatload of cash, but But it's kind of like, okay, well, we've made the right decisions money-wise leading up to that to allow for the fact that it's kind of like a step and a half back, so to speak, but in return for better productivity on the back end. So if you're kind of at the beginning of this, I think, you know, if you're in your 20s and you're going, hey, I've got all the time in the world, (laughs) you know, I don't need to be doing this stuff. Do it now, because when you're 35 and you go, this kind of sucks, you want the flexibility you want to have. 500 grand in the bank to be able to go, yeah, I can take the next six months to really just try to figure out what the heck I want to do.
0: And I think I can't be a case of either. And this is a trap that we see over and over. I don't think it could be a case of I'll be happy when, right? I think you got to be happy in the whole process because happiness is this state of mind. You're you're still going to be you showing up at your goals. And if you're miserable now, I can guarantee it's not going to make you happy. You're still going to be the miserable person. Art and I didn't have time to go over this, but in his book, when he was at Wharton, he was writing comedy already. Like the second that he stopped being in, in the energy field in Washington, reading Cole weekly. I love that. Instead of that, the second he got to Wharton, even though he's not working for any of these companies like CBS or HBO or creating comedy central, he's already in the middle of it. He's writing comedy shows. He's performing again. He's doing all this stuff that he's dreaming about. He's enjoying the process. And I think that's, I think no matter what you love big part of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, he talked about how sitting at his desk, reading Cole weekly was not his life. And, and that's not a knock on Cole weekly. If you're reading Cole weekly and you're going, you know what? I could never imagine reading something else ever like this is the most fun I could possibly have. You're in the right job. But if you're sitting there like art is OG going, you know what? <laughs> I can't imagine myself 20 years from now sitting here reading coal weekly, uh, keeping up with what's going on in the coal business and mm, it's time to move.
5: He definitely, uh, he definitely was on the right side of that trade. I think
0: with the, just with the way that the economics are going, <laughs>
5: yeah.
0: well, there yeah. goes, there goes all of West Virginia. There goes the entire West Virginia vote from our... Uh, how many electors are there in that electoral college?
5: We don't, ha- we don't have to care again for another four years, dude. Oh, let that's right. Let it go. That's right.
0: We can cover that up two years from now. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> hey, before you get carried away with politics on a no politics show, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first.
5: Birthday presents. ta, And birthday cake.
0: I was so happy you got my birthday present.
5: I was so happy I got my birthday present also.
0: I noticed though, you're not, uh, you don't have it. By the way, I have my, check this out. The chocolate chip B&B from uh, just outside Acadia National Park, Bahaba, Maine.
2: Cool.
5: Cool. Yeah, ours are in the dishwasher. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Clean them. That's all right. Got to wash them.
0: Is there any big present you're especially looking forward to?
5: I have everything I need, Joe. Right here? Just your presence is my present. Ah, did I just throw up in my mouth? I'm not not sure. It says it's just, here- it's, you're, it's bile. It's not throw up.
0: Your, your loved ones and your time. That's why they've made buying quality life insurance actually simple. You can get a quote very quickly and go on with your life, go on with your birthday celebration or whatever it might be at Haven Life. Their application is super simple. It's all online. You get an instant coverage decision. Prices are affordable and, of course, offered by Mass Mutual. More than a 160-year-old insurer. And today, we're going to throw out Haven Lifeline to JJ. Say hi, JJ.
4: Hi, Joe and OG and Doug. This is JJ. I have been listening to your podcast since 2017. In fact, I think I have become addicted to it. I have to start a Stacking Benjamins Anonymous group for recovering SP listeners. I have two questions. My wife and I are in our early 40s, have about 420K in our 401K and rollover IRAs cash around 80k and another 120k in my brokerage accounts. I had an M1 Finance account thanks to SB to which I used to deposit a fixed amount of monthly and it used to invest based on my PIEs. However, I joined a new employer a few months ago and due to conflict of interest, I had to divest all my M1 Finance investments and move them to TD Ameritrade. I want to be able to automatically invest every month similar to what I used to do with M1 Finance. Not sure what would be the best way to do with TD Ameritrade. I do not want to buy individual stocks. TD Ameritrade does have a systematic investment concept called managed portfolios, but it is more like a robo-advisor which charges 0.3%. I do not want to pay a fee for investing in index funds. Is there any option? Uh, second question is this. We will be receiving some extra money from our in-laws. I was wondering how I should invest it. Should I buy a rental property or should I invest it in the stock market? Appreciate any advice you could provide. I know I can always reach out to Doug in case you can. guys cannot answer my question. Thank you and keep up the good work.
0: Thank you, JJ. And uh, JJ thinks you might have to start a 12-step program
5: for recovering listeners. I don't, I don't think that. Uh, does anybody actually need to recover from listening to this?
0: Yeah, if you don't learn anything, I think there's no recovery. I think the big problem is uh, JJ setting his expectations too high. That was... That, that, that was the issue. Let's let's start with TD Ameritrade. I think we have some good news for him, OG. I don't think he has to go into this uh, managed program. I think he's got, and he doesn't have to do individual stocks. There's a middle ground.
5: Yeah, I don't know why you wouldn't just pick a, uh, you know, globally diversified mutual fund and set up a systematic investment and bada boom, bada bang, you're good. You don't have to worry about conflicts. Usually with uh, mutual funds, you know, they're going to be conflict free because you're not the one picking the stocks inside the mutual fund and you can be just as diversified with a mutual fund or an ETF program as, um, as individual stocks. So
0: Some funds that you like have minimums. So if you get into those funds initially with whatever that minimum is, you can invest in some of these funds as little as $50 or $100. So it might not even OGB one fund. If you want to diversify into three or more, you can do that too. That's right. Second question is this money that he's going to receive, stocks or real estate? What's your take on that?
5: Yeah, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> can the answer be both? I mean, at the end of the day, there's no right or wrong answer here, it's just what you're comfortable with. You know, if you if you're getting $100,000 and you're like, "Hey, I can go buy a single family property and rent it for 1,000 a month, or I can put 100 grand in the market and and you know, make 10-12% a year in the S&P, then the outcomes are the same. The difference is if you start mucking around with leverage and and that sort of thing, now you can exponentially increase your return potentially, but you also have exponentially increased risk. And then you also have to deal with renters and fixing drywall and stuff like that. So if that's not your, you know, in your ballywick, so to speak, then I don't know that I would uh, pick that one. But you can do real estate in the stock market too. So there's there's a lot of different options there.
0: Yeah, purchase a REIT. And just to roll back a little bit, what OG is telling you, JJ, is if you had said a savings account or one of those two, we would have definitely gone with one of those two. But here's what you're really looking for. For long-term goals, your biggest enemy is inflation. And unless you want to save dollar for dollar, whatever your goal is, uh, which which think about how much money you're going to have to spend to live all the way through retirement, that's going to be a ton of money. So to get your investments to do some of the heavy lifting, your number one goal is to beat inflation. And stocks and real estate historically over long periods of time end up in about the same place. How they get there is a lot different to OG standpoint if you buy individual properties you got to know a little bit about quite a few things you know a lot of people that buy properties OG you know say that you make all your money on the purchase decision so understanding when you've got a good deal in front of you and when you don't i think is job number 1 and job number 2 OG already mentioned this but is the whole maintenance thing and upkeep and back when i was an advisor i saw more people getting out of real estate than in real estate they thought it was a good idea realized it wasn't for them by the way that's me I I owned a rental property, so happy earlier this year to sell that property and not have it anymore. It was a fairly easy property to manage. It was getting a decent return. Just, man, not for me. Every time I dealt with my renter, I just, duh, not something I wanted to do. Feel so much better without it. On the other side, that doesn't mean the stock market, though, oh, geez, a free lunch, you know, when you have funds that can go down 14, 15, 20% and it is in the normal course of business. Yeah, that's average. Yeah, the stock market can scare the pants out of you. So I think in some ways when it comes to downsides, picking your poison, which is why I like what you said also. Why not both?
5: Yeah, a little bit of both, maybe.
0: Good question there, JJ. Thanks for those. If you've got a question for us, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail and uh, JJ Gertrude, who is not only one of mom's BFFs, but also is our room mom in the basement Facebook group. She is going to send you a code, to pick out your Haven life greatest money show on earth circus shirt. All right. That's going to do it for today. Hey, if uh, speaking of financial planning, if you're looking for better financial planning, help in your corner, OG and his team, as we mentioned before, done for the year at taking clients, but they do have the waiting list set up for next year. So if you really want to get started first thing next year, stacking forward slash OG to get on that list. Thanks also to everybody who shared this with a friend. You know, it's always exciting when somebody drops us a note telling us, hey, I told my brother-in-law or I played this for my kid and we were really able to help them out. I think the student loan stuff today was really helpful. I think uh, Art bell story for anybody who likes comedy and Comedy Central and following your dream path no matter what it pays, uh, I think that was super helpful. And of course, the role of an advisor versus what an investment team does. Lots of good stuff. All right. That's going to do it for today. We'll see you back here Wednesday. Wednesday, big episode, by the way. Not only do we have the the Ed Slot dropping by with year-end tax tips. How about that, OG?
5: Bam. Perfect timing.
0: Yeah. We also, OG and I, are going to have our takeaways from 2020. Heard our contributors takeaways from events of 2020 on Friday. Now you're going to hear our top fives. All right, Doug, you got it from here, my friend. What should we have learned today?
3: Sure thing, Joe. You know me, always willing to help out the little people. First, take a lesson from our headline segment. You can't control how Washington will handle student loans, but you can control what you do. There are lots of resources to make sure your student loan repayment plan is optimized. Second, take a lesson from Art Bell. Have an idea? realize that good ideas can come from anywhere it's a combination of preparing for the big moments in life and recognizing opportunity that will help you become a success but the big takeaway i don't know how to say this but art bell actually was here just for the book interview he hung up and he never even called back but that's just fine because I wouldn't want a show on Comedy Central anyway. Then Comedy Central would be telling me what to do, and the last thing I need is an overlord in my life, like Joe's mom's not enough, hounding me about what I should do next. Okay, okay. I'll take out the trash. My God, I am still recording and performing my greatness here. Gotta run, see ya. A special thanks to Art Bell for joining Joe and OG on today's show. We'll have a link to Art's book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor on our show notes page. If you want even more of Art, you should check out his work at ArtBellWriter.com. This show is created by Joe Salcihi, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at S Benjamin's Cast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor Doug, and if you could only know what it really smells like down here. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor.
5: Welcome to the birthday episode of the After Show. Um, I can't believe you're going to do a little extra here
0: when I thought you were going to-
5: Just bail? Just sit back. No, that's all right. So I have a question for you, uh, Joseph. You're pretty smart about your money decisions. Like you pay- to try to be. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, but sometimes things don't go according to plan, right? Can you think of something in the last three or four months or three or four weeks where you spent some money and you're like, God, that was a terrible use of money. Hmm, it's pretty good. You know, if you can't really, nothing pops up. Uh, uh, we had pizza last night
0: and, and I shouldn't have done no, it. No,
5: not pizza. Like I'm, I'm talking about like, you know, something.
0: Yeah, but it was a bad use of money. We had plenty of food in the refrigerator and we were just tired and went, you know what? let's go get a Every pizza. Every
5: time you go out to dinner, allegedly it's a bad use of money. Well, I am going to put forth uh, an opportunity to save some tech or some money. We always talk about trying to save money. Uh, you can save $7 Well, it's $6.99 plus tax for not having to rent Fat Man.
1: I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I've lost my influence. Maybe it's time I retired the coat.
3: You still have it. Some kids with a deer rifle put two holes in the sleigh, one in me. All I have is a Loathing for a world that's forgotten. United States military would like to procure your services. This is a one-time deal, gentlemen. How are you, Mike? Nicole and the kids are well, I hope.
1: Where are you?
2: I just
1: lost a big time, What's the job?
2: I'm like you to kill Santa Claus.
0: I'm looking for the fat man. You can't be serious. And things get real. This kid in the video is opening up his present, finds out he got some coal from Santa Claus, I believe that uh, Mel Gibson plays a part of Santa Claus working with the US government. On some project, well, you and I talked about this about a month ago or six weeks ago. That was coming out, and you were excited, man.
5: It had everything that you needed: tanks and explosions and gunfire, and and it was, uh, it was so bad. It was so bad, and I knew it was going to be bad because it was supposed to come out on like Netflix or something. And it it was not on Netflix anymore. <laughs> and my son goes, "Well, the people at next Netflix are pretty smart to not put crappy movies on Netflix." <laughs> But that it was that bad. It was terrible. I said on a scale of one to one to ten, what do you think? He goes, Oh, it's like a two. Oh, wait, you said one to ten? I thought you said one to a hundred. That's what he said. He said the a two <laughs> on a scale of one to a hundred. He corrected it to a forty. But um, it had so much promise. Like, it's an interesting twist on the story about like, here's the real guy, Santa Claus. He's got his real toys being built, and he's battling the kind of human nature of kids. He's These days, the kids these days, you know, the whole U S government thing has nothing to do with anything. Like they have to, they weave it in there because kind of the way that the story goes, but if you eliminated that whole thing, like the movie would have gone, it would have gone from an hour and 40 minutes to like 48 minutes Oh, and it it like, like there had no purpose other than body count. Really. That was it.
0: Just making sure the movie was long enough. Yeah. Qualifies. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Pretty much. But my son did say, he goes, you know what, Dad? The guy who was Santa Claus is a really great actor, though. And, <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's pretty famous. And he goes, he goes, yeah. oh, like, what other movies he been in? So we start, we kicked off Braveheart. He goes, this isn't the same guy. I go, it is the exact same guy. He goes, he looks like a kid in this movie. I go, well, it was you know, thirty years ago, so, so.
0: And and he might have had uh, some rough things between now. And then. I mean, I will you know
5: leave a little to the imagination, but uh, Mel Gibson does play a very. Salty scorned Santa Claus very well, so he he does a fantastic job. The storyline is just that he is delivering toys. He delivers toys to all the good kids. He gets cold to the bad kids. This one kid in particular is uh, for some reason he he is like a gangster. You, you know, you never really figure out why why is this Santa Claus is or the no kid the is? kid. So why is oh the why kid. is this eleven year old top gangster? You know how does he have the number of a hitman? None of this stuff, right? Like, it's just totally undeveloped. And and he's a bad kid. He does some really bad stuff. And then he gets coal. And so then he calls the hitman to hire. He hires the hitman to go kill Santa Claus. And the guy tracks him down and, and finds where he is. And explosions ensue. But um, anyways, so I just, my Christmas gift to you, Joe, and to everyone else at the part of the show, take the $7 that you would spend on Fat Man And put it in an envelope and donate it to something that you care about.
0: (laughs) My good friend, Joe, who uh, listens to the show from time to time. He also was my roommate in college. Heard you discussing it. It's totally in his wheelhouse of movies. Yeah. He texted me a week and a half ago and said it was awful.
5: Yeah. It was so bad. So, so, so bad.